0: Hey, what's up, everybody? This upload is coming to July 12th, 2017. My name is Dallas Post, and I'll be your host for this edition of the Post Money Plan podcast. We believe that empowerment comes through knowledge. So our purpose here is to inform, educate, and stimulate thought on topics within personal finance, economics, and investing. Don't forget, you can find us at postmoneyplan.com or search the Post Money Plan in the iTunes podcast app or in Google Play as well. Okay, so we cut the discussion off last week. We'll continue it now this week with part two, coming back for the discussion in the topic of negotiation. We'll be delving into deal-making, points to consider in negotiation, things you can use as leverage, things that work and don't work very well, anecdotes from international dealings and things like that. So welcome to the show, Brett. Thank you. Glad to be here. So... Some of the issues that I wanted to address is to go into some of the strategies to achieve the results you're looking for in a negotiation. So what we used to do as a
1: rule of thumb in my past life is, depending on where we were in the world, we'd we'd actually build into our numbers some percentage on where we thought the price would go. And so that was built into our sandbox. We call it the sandbox. And so whenever we go to senior management for approval, we would say, look, this is where I think this is going to end up. This is how I plan for this conversation to go. Are you happy around these parameters? And then I'll try to get it over here as far as I can. But in general, are you okay if it lands somewhere in this area? And then they'll say yes or no. And then once you know that, then you can go negotiate with a customer with confidence because you know what's approved and what's not. And so part of this is you have to know what you're willing to spend before you go in there and you have to know what something's worth. So don't, you can't go in somewhere not knowing what a service is worth and try to negotiate. So whenever I go negotiate my rent, What I'll do, and I keep coming back to this example because it's kind of a fun one. But after I turn on my notice, and it gets to be a month before I'm going to get kicked out, quote unquote, which has never happened, by the way. And I've (laughs) done done this nine times at least, and it's never happened. (laughs) Knock on wood, watch me get evicted in February. (laughs) Um, But what I'll do is I'll call around several apartment complexes nearby, and I'll say, hey, what's your price? How many square feet is it? What's the move special? And you always ask for the special, even if they don't list one on their website, because, hey, they might give you a special. So you just fish for it. And then I find one that's giving a good special, and some of them aren't. But I don't worry about those. I worry about the one that's giving me the special. And then I go to my apartment complex and say, hey, these guys are giving me a special and they're across the street from you. Where's my special? And then <laughs> they'll, us- they'll usually give it to you because it's just easier to cough up a $1,000 or whatever it is or $500 than to have you move because their switching cost is high as well. So part of this is that you have to know what the switching cost is for the person who's trying to buy something from you or the person you're trying to sell something to. So there's always a barrier.
0: I would say a a more generalized point to what you're saying is that knowing what you bring to the table in terms of advantage as whatever party you are, what you're benefiting them versus what they would have to do with another customer. You know, if you're a safer credit risk and you've been a loyal customer and it would cost them a bunch to get someone else, those are advantages that you have that you can use as negotiation tactics. Those are things you can use as leverage And it's not like you're unfriendly and extorting them. Those are things that you know that you have that they want versus there's other things that maybe they have that you want that are more important to you so that you can give up some of the things that you don't care about as much but they care about. And in exchange, you can get some of the things that you care about, but they don't care about as much.
1: And that's a a very good point, too, is that part of this is you want to be the easy button. So you want to be the person that's easy to do business with. We have a person who we've hired a company to do some work for us. And this guy works in sales over there. And I was over there talking to him and he said, hey, he asked what we were up to. And so I told him a few things and he said, hey, why don't you let us do that for you? And I know I'm not going to hire this guy to do that because he's going to be way too expensive. But the point is he was willing to, to suggest that he takes care of a problem for me. And that to a lot of people is worth something. Because if you don't have to worry about something anymore, and you know it's going to be taken care of, that is worth something extra in most cases. So, if you can figure out how to make yourself the easy option, which again, does not mean you get into a kick out, beat down negotiation with somebody, but you want to make this a simple, elegant solution that gets them back on the road fast, then you've got a horse in the race. You don't want to be the guy that's taking forever to get something done. You want to be the person that's the quick and easy fix maybe it costs a little bit more okay fine And then they'll do it for you or they'll they'll sign up with you just because it's easier
0: yeah i'd say that's a point of just knowing like what's important and what's not like i i used to deal with this when i was in supply chain where i would be negotiating contracts we were always the buyer of the services so dealing with the seller of the services we're negotiating the contract The price is usually not the sticking issue in those deals that we were doing. It'd be some like legal liability or something like that. They might get stuck on some, what we considered an inane issue. And then we might be unmoving on some other issue. And that's where you just get to a sticking point and go nowhere. So if nobody budges, you're not going to have any progress. So that's another point is where you want to know what ideal outcomes are, but then you also want to know what unacceptable outcomes are ahead of time. So the more preparation you do in advance... The more you're going to come into a negotiation with all the information that you could possibly have and not be stuck in the middle of it, not knowing what you should do ahead of time or what acceptable outcomes are. Because if you know going into it what's acceptable and what's not, you'll be able to have that flexibility during the negotiation to have some leeway and give and take to get to a deal. That's
1: right. And what's ideal and acceptable for you or ideal versus unacceptable for you is different than your customer or the person you're negotiating with a lot of times. And so it can take a while to figure out what that is. Sometimes it's straightforward, but sometimes it's not. But it's very worth your time to try and figure that out in advance. Well,
0: yeah, that's the point. And so not only figuring it out for yourself, but trying to get, pinpoint what it is for them on their side of the table. On the price point, you know, in your example, if you say like if they offer 10 and you say eight, then they move to like 9.9, you have a pretty good sense that they're not going to move to 8. And that's probably, 8 is probably unacceptable from their side of the fence. So that's where you can start to pinpoint where they're at. You don't know that for a fact, but you start to get a, a ballpark for it.
1: Yeah, we need, we need to briefly discuss what unacceptable really means as well. So unacceptable isn't something that you really don't like. It's something that you just cannot accept, period. So one example would be back when BP had the Deepwater Horizon... It became very obvious that some of those companies that had worked with BP had not protected themselves adequately or had on uh, pollution clauses in their contracts. And so you remember that Transocean and Cameron got dragged into court as part of their work that they did with BP to talk about who had done the cement job. I think Halliburton was in there too, right? But anyways, but they all after this, there were a lot of fines that were assessed and BP was trying their hardest to try and, and peg some of those fines onto the people that had done the work for them. But as soon as this happened, because I was doing jobs in the oil and gas business, everybody wanted to have pollution indemnities, super, super tight pollution indemnities. That is an example of an unacceptable risk to a contract in that particular case is the risk is just so high if you don't have that, as BP demonstrated by getting whacked over the head with that so hardly, that it's just not acceptable to to sign that deal if that doesn't change. So that's an example of an unacceptable thing. Ideal would be, okay, we got a 10% higher price. Unacceptable is I could lose my shirt and my house and my wife and kids over this.
0: Yeah, exactly. You were already kind of speaking to this, but sometimes people can forget about it in a negotiation. But having rapport with the counterparty is pretty valuable because people are more inclined to get a deal done with or, or be flexible with someone that, that they like or enjoy as an individual because there's a certain sentimentality and personal experience in a negotiation. It's not completely like robots dealing with each other. And so even though if you work at a big company and they work at a big company and on paper, it's two big companies doing a deal together, you'll read in the news how huge merger falls through because two CEOs like got into an argument and they didn't like each other. That kind of stuff matters because in the end, it does come down to personal relationships. And even multinational conglomerates and governments are in the end made up of individual groups of people. So the rapport that individuals have, what you have with the counterparty is is important.
1: Yeah. And I'll give an example of establishing rapport from my commercial world. I was over in the Middle East negotiating a deal with some people from a country over there. And in Islam, you don't drink alcohol. And so how do you tell if someone is following Islam is usually they'll step out to pray a couple times during the day. And so if you're sitting in a room with them all day and they leave every few hours to pray, then that's a pretty good sign that that's what they're following. And so this happened when I was negotiating with them. And so we took them out to dinner afterwards, which is Fairly common practice just to get to know each other better. So during the day when you negotiate, it's professional. And then in the evenings, that's when you get to know someone more personally. And then you come back to the, the table the next day to negotiate again. And so what happens is as the week goes through, and usually these negotiations would take a week or two. or And this isn't just a, hey, this is the first time we're meeting this person. This is more of a, we both established what we want to get done out of this week. Here's what we're going to talk about. And then you've got the agenda set and you're going through it. But what happens here is you're trying to get to know the person better and so you understand how they tick and what who they are as a person. And so that's how we'd establish rapport is by having these dinners. So we got to dinner with these people and the sales guy that I was working with for my company immediately goes and orders alcohol, and I'm thinking, well, that's not maybe the best decision here to establish rapport with these guys, and so they order um, some juice. I order juice as well after them, and then the waiter comes by later on and asks if we can have anything else, and so he asked the customer first that I'm dealing with, and they said, no, thank you. I've had enough, and that's another concept in, in Islam is not taking more than you really require, and so I said, no, thank you. I've had enough after they did as well, and so, of course, my sales guy goes and orders another round of drinks. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> the point here is that you don't have to follow Islam. The point here is that they need to perceive that you are having empathy with them, that you're able to, to understand who they are and what's valuable to them.
0: I think that really is about reading your counterparty. That's not only about like verbal cues in literally in the negotiation, but you're talking about interpreting the, like their culture, what they're bringing to the table in terms of like how they operate And if you're just completely ignorant of their culture or where they're coming from, you may offend them. And if you offend them, they may not want to do business with you. Yeah. And (laughs) I'm over
1: in the UK rather frequently for work. And I met a man on the train once over there who was talking about how he, he had done a lot of business back in China, back before China had really become the powerhouse that it is today. And back when he was doing the deals in China, the group that he was dealing with specifically refused to talk business with him for three weeks. And and so he ended up spending a a whole career in China. But (laughs) but (laughs) they wouldn't talk at all. What what happened is uh, what he found out is that the culture prevailing at the time was that they wouldn't talk business until he understood he was a person. And so they kept inviting him out week after week after week. And it wasn't until after the third week of going out with him and going to bars, whatever it was that they would do, It wasn't until they felt like they knew him that they would talk about business. So whenever he tried to bring up business, they would say, no, 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 there's no time to talk about that. Let's go out and get a drink. And so so he he had a strong liver. But but the point is, the culture that existed in that bubble that he was operating in then was that they did not even want to talk to you until they thought that that you understood who they were and how they did business very different than how we think in in America and in Western European nations. Here we don't really care about who somebody is, we care about what they're offering. Over there they care much more about who the person is that's offering it to them. And you'll see that as well in the Middle East a bit and South America to some degree as well. So the point here is that people have different perspectives and different values. A lot of places want to understand who the person is that they're dealing with. And we were selling, uh, we were selling some compressors once over in, in China again, and we were told that our competition was claiming a higher efficiency than we were. So our, our engineering team goes over there and says, well, that's very nice, but how many compressors have, have you bought from me? And so they said, this many. And our engineering guy said, yes. And how many of them have come in below our guaranteed efficiency? And they said, none of them. And he said, that's right. Every time that I've told you something I'm going to do, I've done it. When have these people done what they said they were going to do? And they said they haven't. And so, and so this customer ended up buying our equipment just because of that relationship and because of that reputation. That's unusual. Most other places in the world would say, look, this number is higher than this one. I want this. So you have to understand that that's not always the case. Some people don't always want the lower number or the higher number. You want to understand or have faith that you're going to deliver what you want.
0: In the end, I think that all that comes back to interpreting the signals and the signs and the body language and everything from the other party and having an understanding of their culture, all that stuff, is just reading the counterparty and trying to empathize with their side of the equation so that you can come to the best outcome. I mean, we've kind of been alluding to this, but I think just the concept of quid pro quo where that's basically what negotiation is. What do you give what are you getting in return? It's always be thinking about what can I bring to the table and not just about what am I getting, but what are you offering? It can be easy to forget that in a negotiation. But what are you benefiting them? Yeah,
1: and part of this, so just to be clear, so we're, we have the same understanding of what this means. So quid pro quo means this for that. So we're saying, I will give you this in exchange for that. And that's it. So it has a negative connotation a lot of times due to some abuses in the past. <laughs> <laughs> but, but when we say quid pro quotas, there's, there's no negative connotation there. We're just saying, if I give you this, I would like for you to give me this. So in business, that's very common. So we're not talking about an abusive relationship here. Yeah. yeah, but, yeah. but what's important here is, is that you need to understand what you're asking the customer for or what you're you're requesting from your counterpart. As we said before, it's, it's different things to different people. And you need to be very careful with this as well, because this is where people get in trouble with negotiations. And this, this won't happen to the people that are negotiating rent or reduced AT&T bills. This happens to people that are negotiating with like governments or things like that. A lot of times where you get into mercury waters is when you hire somebody to help introduce you to somebody else or to act as an intermediary. And in industry, in the last... 10 years there has been a huge shift in what's acceptable for having a mediator or an intermediary the reason for that is that these guys virtually always every single one i've ever heard of has this problem where they have conflicts of interest where you're paying them to do something and then the person you're trying to negotiate with is trying to influence them as well and part of the thing with an intermediary is they have to be profiting from this relationship so The issue here is that you'll be paying them or the customer's paying them or someone's forcing you to use them. So they're never in it for the interest of one party because otherwise they wouldn't be an intermediary. What they're trying to do is profit from that middleman status. And you have to be really, really careful with how they're trying to profit. One example, we'll call this a hypothetical. In this hypothetical situation, a company goes to approach a customer who elects to use an agent and the agent says, hey, I can introduce you to this customer and I will do this in exchange for, say, three to five percent of the contract's value, which is not an unreasonable sum in my experience. And so you say, great. Otherwise, I wouldn't sell anything. So, hey, it's worth paying this person something to have access to this potential customer here comes the plot twist. The agent that you hire, hypothetically, is childhood friends with the plant manager who wants to <laughs> buy something from you. And you find this out over a lovely dinner. So what this means in reality is that the person that you've hired and now are paying something like a quarter of a million dollars to to close a deal is literally just milking you because he can influence the end user and so realistically, since these people grew up together, you're effectively paying a customer to buy a service from you, which is basically a bribe. So when you get into situations like this and I, I believe I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, you have to understand that this for that, the quid pro quo, you need to be really careful with that because the overall concept is that you're exchanging something of monetary value for something else of monetary value or, or some committed service in the future. But this gets really murky really fast when you're trying to influence someone by making some sort of promise or some sort of payment. So you need to be very careful.
0: Well, when it comes to talking about third parties, yeah, you definitely want to watch out for conflicts of interest. And that's the case like throughout business. Like Wherever there's conflicts of interest, there are murky waters and, and you want to tread lightly.
1: Yeah, so in, in that hypothetical situation we talked about, what would happen in there is that the person who is running the sales project or managing the sales project would report that back to the company and the company would say, hey, screw this guy. He's out. And then they would cut the agent and then the agent would be very upset and it would take an additional two years to close the project. But again, speaking of hypotheticals.
0: OK, well, let me throw you a curveball. What if negotiations either start hostile or turn hostile, but both parties like are trying to get a deal done for whatever reason? They're not walking away from the table, but negotiations are hostile. Like, how do you handle that?
1: Yeah. So the, f-
0: <laughs> the first
1: real negotiation that I had with the customer, I was just thrown to the wolves. They sent me across the world to go meet with this customer. And the first four hours at least were just the customer showing me emails and talking to me about how my company did such a terrible job and they hated us and everybody else in that continent hated us. And here are some emails about them talking about how much they hate us. And by the way, it's nice to have you here. So so the first thing is that you have to realize that you cannot use your emotions as a guide when you're negotiating. You can use them as a general feeling for how you think the customer is or someone's perceiving you or how they're reacting to you if you're particularly intuitive. But the point here is that you cannot let someone use your emotions against you when you're trying to negotiate something. So the first thing is to realize that sometimes that's actually a tactic. In that case, it was because I showed up and I was... So, so young, <laughs> <And> <laughs> young, clean shaven, had the, had the tie a little bit too tight, maybe. <laughs> but the point there is that sometimes the negotiation will sort of hostile saying, look, I don't want you here. I'm upset. What are you going to do about this? And it kind of puts you on your back foot. What you need to do in that case is decide why you're there. So in that case, my point was this person has to buy services from me. They don't have a choice. They know this. I know this. The reason they're being hostile is because they wanted a better deal because they were afraid I was going to milk them like a cow.
0: I mean, when you end up in a hostile negotiation and people aren't walking away, that probably means there are no alternatives, right?
1: Yes, but it it can also mean that they feel trapped. So hostile means that someone, one of the two parties feels like they're trapped and they don't have a choice or you're doing something that they really don't like, but they feel like they can't walk away. That's where it starts getting hostile. And that can be, it's not because you're necessarily tying their arms, but it may be that they're running out of time before they have to have a plan. Like, for example, in oil and gas, if you have a service contract where you're operating their equipment and you haven't signed a renewal and the contract expires in three weeks, they're going to be really, really upset because they don't know what you're going to do in three weeks. You could literally pull all your people off the platform and then congratulations, there are now 10,000 barrels per day that are not being produced of oil. So that to an oil company is really, really, really upsetting. And so that to that customer is a hostile negotiation because they feel like you're holding them hostage in that situation because of the time constraint. It's not necessarily time, but it could be the fact that they feel like they're isolated from third party service providers or that they don't have someone else to buy it from. So if you go to Best Buy and it turns out that everybody in town is out of headphones and you're leaving for a trip tomorrow and Best Buy says, hey, we know everybody else is out of headphones, but we have some want to make a deal. If you have a meeting that requires you to use headphones, you start feeling like that's hostile somewhat because you're trapped and you have to buy it and there's no one else. So it depends how you react in that case. So in my situation, what I did is I knew that this customer would be buying future stuff from us. It was only a matter of time we needed to turn this around. And so I was very polite and I gave them what is a fair deal in their eyes and my eyes. So we didn't press that. And I started off by saying, look, you know, I understand that you've felt mistreated in the past. I'm not going to debate that point, but this is a separate issue from that. What we're going to do here is give you a fair deal that's going to be seen as fair in your eyes, if not now, then later on in the future when you've had time to think about it. So here's what I propose that we do to move forward. And sometimes you just got to lead people through something that they don't necessarily want to do or that they are very apprehensive about. But again, it's you have to understand what you're there to do. and, And negotiations are business. Okay, this is not like a covenant relationship. This is you are here to get something. They are here to get something. How do you make this a deal that you are both happy about or a deal that you're proud to walk away from? That's kind of how that works is you either have to end it. And just say, look, I'm going to beat you over the head and I'm going to take your wallet or you say, okay, we're not going to do that. We're going to be nice guys.
0: Well, hostile negotiations actually bring up the subject of game theory and why game theory became so popular back in, I guess it was the 70s because of the Cold War and people thinking about what happens if there's nuclear war between the U.S. and the U.S.S.R., Thinking of that as a negotiation and game theory came about because of thinking if one party does X, then this is the outcome. But if we do Y, then this is the outcome. But there's the consideration of is this negotiation a one time event where we don't care after this what happens or is it like we're going to have to deal with them again and again and again? And if it's if you're dealing with someone who you're going to have to do business with many times in the future You don't want to burn a bridge that you're making them upset Because like you got a good deal one time, but then it's going to ruin the relationship for all the future to come
1: Yeah, and that's a really good point is that negotiations may be a chess game But people are not chess pieces and you can't treat them like that
0: if there's a, a stalemate in a situation you want to think about the best alternatives to a negotiated agreement, which is in negotiation terms is referred to as BATNA. In case there's a failure in negotiations or, or you're going to potentially have to walk away. So you want to think about what your alternatives are if you can't come to a final agreement. That helps you know when you need to walk away.
1: Yeah, you need to have a sandbox. So if you go and negotiate your rent, for example you need to think about this before you go down there and it gets emotional or, or you start having second guesses on yourself. What would be helpful is to find, for example, in this specific situation, a place that you would go live if everything falls through. So that's your alternative. Then what you're trying to do with your apartment complex is say, look, this is the price that I'd be happy to stay here for. Will you do this? Yes or no. And then you have to know whether or not you're willing to stay for the price for, for X dollars per month. And at some point, <laughs> this is what somebody's going to say is well if it's just a dollar more than you wanted to than you pay than you wanted to pay would you move out and the answer is yes so at some point there is a finite dollar amount where you say hey it's no longer worth it I'm leaving and a penny more than that you're still leaving so you need to figure out where your line in the sand is and stick to that and have an alternative in mind and that's the thing that scares a lot of people is they feel like they don't have a backup plan. So you need to have a backup plan or your alternative before you go talk to people. And if you don't have an alternative, then, hey, you know, you're basically bluffing at this point <laughs> and, you're try- and you're trying to convince them that, hey, this person's a flight risk. I should give them a better deal. But really, really, you <laughs> you are just bluffing and you hope that they don't call you.
0: Sometimes that's going to happen, but most of the time it doesn't have to. That should be worst case scenario when you have no other options. All right. So let's just kind of close it out with key points for people to be thinking about in negotiations of things that they should be bringing to the table or using in terms of strategy.
1: I think to summarize what's important to keep in mind when you do this is you have to be willing to risk something when you're negotiating and you need to understand where your where your tolerances are. So if you're buying tires, you go back to that example your risk tolerance is very, <laughs> you don't have a lot to lose. You can always drive the tires another day. So it's it's worth pressing your advantage, which is time in that circumstance. For negotiating rent, time is your enemy. And so you need to figure out how exactly you're going to play that, which for me has been, I always give notice. I wait a month and then three weeks or so before I'm supposed to move out, I'll go call around to have an alternative figured out and then negotiate my price with the apartment people by then. And as we said earlier, you have to know who the decision makers are. You don't waste your time on people that can't make a decision. So if you go to Best Buy and you want to buy the headphones for $10 and the cashier rings you up for $10 and you offer eight, it's too late <laughs> you lost because the cashier cannot change the price. So you need to understand who the person is. And it's usually a salesperson or the salesperson's manager that makes that decision. And in rent for an apartment, it's the property manager. Don't waste your time on the front desk, people go straight to the source and then that person can make the decision. So you have to find the right party to hear you. You have to be likable. So we talked earlier about having rapport with people. So when I go negotiate with my rent, that's not the first time they've seen me, okay? So I'm not just paying my rent and never stopping by the office and make a point to stop by the office every week or so, say hi, ask them if they're excited to go outside because it's nice weather. Or whatever it is ask them what's going on in their life so they know who I am they know my apartment number when I come down there to negotiate they're already ready to receive me because they like me so that's an important concept as well you have to have your sandbox we talked about that which is what am I willing to accept what am I not willing to accept you have this defined before you go in and then we talked about market exploration which is you trying to figure out by throwing out a couple numbers or throwing out a couple ideas to the person you're talking with, gauging their reaction and saying, okay, is this something that's acceptable to them? Yes or no. If I, for example, in my job, get kicked out of a conference room and told not to come back, probably came in a little bit too high on my price. But the point is there's another opportunity. So you have, to, you have to do the exploration all the time. So when GEICO tries to raise your insurance, you say, okay, fine, let me get five other quotes. So you spend the 15 minutes calling around an hour, whatever it is. And this is the thing, too. This is a side note. But people people don't want to call around like, oh, it takes too much time. What do you get paid per hour? You know, (laughs) you know, if you save 300 bucks in a year on insurance, you know, isn't it worth, I don't know, 10 hours of your time to figure it out? It is. But realistically, it doesn't even take 10 hours. It'll probably take you an hour of calling around to get to save 100 bucks. Congratulations. You just made $100 an hour. How often do you get to do that? So the point here is figure out what the cost is to pursue the opportunity and then make the choice. The other thing we talked about is asking for the best price. And a lot of times that can just short circuit a negotiation, even in America, and just ask them for their best price. You also have to remember that big companies don't have time to deal with you. So you have to find a small company and someone who's receptive to making a deal. The caveat here is that some companies that are very large have small local branches that are run by local people. Who care a whole lot more. And so, if you find, for example, a McDonald's franchise, McDonald's is a huge faceless organization. <laughs> the, the reality is that the CEO has no idea who you are, nor does he care. But if you're in a small town and you buy McDonald's every day of the week, you're probably going to get a, a free fry once in a while. But the point there is that you've established the relationship. You've established that you're a regular customer. They'll probably work with you. It's the same thing when I used to have a crippling addiction to Taco Bell. I went there, <laughs> I probably went there 3 or 4 times a week easy, and it was always at the same time and so I always had the same cashier at the window. And so what would happen is I would say hi, and part of this is because I'm a clown when I go order, so I'm like, "Hey, how are you doing?" <laughs> so, but the point is this cashier knew who I was. And so she, I would show up to the, the drive-thru window and she'd be like, oh, I knew it was you. <laughs> but then what happens is they start giving you free stuff. Or if you go in there and you're like, I want to buy two uh, Mexican pizzas, can I have a free drink? And they'd be like, yeah, sure, whatever. And they give you the free drink.
0: Well, that comes back to the rapport.
1: Yeah, exactly. But the point is like you have to find people that can make the decision. So at Best Buy, if they give you something for free, that's theft. If it's Taco Bell, they give you something free. It's like, okay, you got a free drink.
0: Well, th- th- I guess that would come back to, like, the ability of the place to give a deal. Like, a franchise has that flexibility, whereas maybe uh, an enterprise doesn't have that authority.
1: Yeah, but that, that's, again, like, you have to know where you're playing. And so you have to find the person who make who makes the decision. You have to understand that they're, they're in a place to make a decision, and you have to present a value proposition. So the value proposition for Taco Bell is, hey, this guy eats a lot of burritos. Let's keep him happy. <laughs> so, <laughs> And keep playing to that terrible addiction, which I have since rid <laughs> myself of. It's the dark times.
0: Like, like a little plug for Taco Bell, there. A okay, little plug for Taco
1: Bell. <laughs> go, go order Taco Bell. Get the cheesy bean and rice burrito, dollar nineteen. <laughs> um, incidentally, Taco Bell has done a great job of price exploration on the chalupa. Back when I was in, uh, this is probably fifteen years ago, the chalupa cost a dollar and nine cents. Now, you're not getting one of those for less than $249. <laughs> <laughs> i am just telling you that the rate that that has compounded is very significant. It has more than doubled in price in the last probably 10 years. I'm just saying, Taco Bell has done a great job of pushing the chalupa and finding out <laughs> what the market will bear on that price.
0: All right. On, on that note, <laughs> we'll wrap up things here. So... Thank you for listening to this episode of the post money plan podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast channel on the iTunes podcast app.